Welcome to A Noise from the Deep, the Greenleaf Music Podcast. That is music from one of my favorite musicians ever, Mark Dresser. <laughs> yeah, Mark Dresser. That's Michael Bates talking. That is true, and this is Dave Douglas to my left. I'm over here, and uh, we are back with another episode of the A Noise from the Deep podcast. Um, greenleafmusic.com is where you would find more information about all the topics discussed. Mark Dresser, also one of my favorite musicians and people, uh, and we'll be playing a bunch of his music and speaking with him. Um, and uh, he was—he is in San Diego, so we were having a Skype conversation. As you'll hear, um, there were some interesting uh, stretch uh, sonics in, in yeah. his voice at moments, but we hope you'll bear with us. Yeah. So. Rate and review us at iTunes. Here comes the interview. Thank you so much. See ya. Hey, Dave. Hey, Michael. What's going on? Okay, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> it's really great. It's great to have you on the podcast, Mark Dresser. Thank you, Dave Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Bates is here, and uh, I know he has a lot of uh, uh, more technical bass-focused questions, but uh, we were just listening to um, Nourishment. Yeah. That's great. Wow. Great Thanks. band. Yeah. Oh, man. Absolutely. Uh Taking advantage of, of those long histories of collaboration. Right? Yeah. Denman Maroney? Yeah, Denman Maroney at piano, who I guess I've been playing with, oh gosh, I want to say since 1988 or 89. So a long time. And he's, it's prepared and unprepared piano. Yeah, we yeah. Would, it's what he calls hyper piano. Hyper piano. Is, yeah, which is basically non fixed preparations. So he can fluidly move between, you know, altered, tamperly altered sounds and traditional playing. And Michael Serene on drums? I, I guess. Michael Serene is on a few cuts there, <laughs> and uh, Tom Rainey's on a few cuts as well. Oh, great. Yeah, two great drummers. And then uh, uh, Rudresh Mahanthapa on alto sax, and, uh, uh, who I've had a, a pretty long history with, I think probably since about 2003, uh, we had a trio with um, Jerry Hemingway uh, called Mauger. And then, uh, and then with Michael, Michael Desson, great trombonist and uh, collaborator, we do a lot of the telematic stuff together. He's here at, uh, at UC Irvine. And mm. so he plays in both the, in my West Coast quintet as well. Yeah. I just saw him play here in Brooklyn. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I've only met him telematically. That's right. <laughs> wow. How does that stuff work, the telematics? Well, uh, because at these universities, at, the, at these research universities, we have this, uh, what's called Internet 2, but basically it's you know, high bandwidth, high speed, fiber optic network where uh, you know, we have at least a gigabit of uh, bandwidth where you know, high-end commercial will be like 25 megabits. So it's so like a super highway. And it allows us to use this uh, software called Jack Trip, developed at Stanford, which allows us to use 
uh, multi-channel, uncompressed audio. So it's like it's kind of like uh, playing in a you know CD quality or better sound. Is that Chris Chafe that developed that technology? Chris Chafe and uh, and uh, and one of his colleagues from Stanford. Yes, yeah, and you know that's still uh, we have not found anything better. Uh, it's just you know it's just the sound quality makes it you know all makes it worth it as we seek to bump up the the video level and we're making progress on that but the deal is why we use different software for video and audio is because video takes up more bandwidth and and if you sync them then you're adding uh audio latency which for you know for for the the kind of music we play is doesn't work to our advantages right we you know, we we go with the, the audio quality, and we keep working on bumping up the video quality. And it's one of the things about it is the uh, the the music of reduced carbon footprint. Well, that right. yeah, that's the conceit. <laughs> <laughs> so like, well, uh, touche, well put. You know, uh, uh, I mean, there's no doubt that we're not getting on a plane. You know, right. And uh, and as such, we can or have the potential to rehearse uh, more than uh, you know more than we would in a normal circumstance. Mm. So uh, that that is you know a, a a plus for the music and and artistically it's fun and uh, it's uh, it's a more collaborative uh, process than normal than you know performance as. I had known it before I got into this. Huh. Uh, first of all, you know, there's this big technical infrastructure which you have to learn about, and you're consulting with people who have expertise in video, uh, network issues. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a plug and play uh, situation. It's not like Skype. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, a, it's you know we really we spend uh, you know considerable amounts of time testing you know it for issues of uh bandwidth connectivity audio and and video issues is there a website that houses a lot of these performances both audio and video yeah you know um we have uh you know we have some vimeo um stuff we have some uh youtube stuff up now so there, if, if people were to go to Vimeo, how would they search? Uh, Michael Dessen. Uh-huh. It's under his thing. There's also, if you do a web search on the virtual tour, mm. you'll find a lot of information of what we've done. Uh, yeah, just if you go to YouTube and go up Telematic at, and put my name in, you'll, you'll get linked uh, to a bunch of stuff we've done. Who else is on the virtual tour? Well, the local band was... Uh, uh, Nicole Mitchell and Myra Melford, Michael Dessen, and myself. Wow. Uh, then we did three concerts. The first one was with Amherst, which was with Jason Robinson, Bob Wiener, and Marty Ehrlich. The next concert the following day was was with uh, Zurich with Matthias Ziegler and Jerry Hemingway. Then the final concert was uh, the following day on Sunday with Stony Brook with uh, Sarah Weaver conducting and then the band was Jane Ira Bloom, Min Chao Fen, uh, Ray Anderson, and Matt Wilson. Wow. Yeah, you know, there, there, there was, we probably planned this for about a year and a half. We did about three months of, you know, audio 
audio and video testing because two of the three places had never done um, telematic performance at all. So mm. there, you know, we were setting up new nodes and right. Uh, anyhow, it's you know, but it, it really came off really came off quite well, and the music was really gratifying. Is there a live audience at all locations when you do this? We we are attached to playing for people, you know. I mean, that's you know, it's it just makes the performance real for me. Uh huh. So know? so in both locations, there you know, there's an audience. Yeah, we uh -huh. enjoy that a lot, and uh, and it's really interesting. Uh, you know, though we're able to transcend location, we're not able to transcend time zone. So right. Uh, <laughs> We did a concert with Zurich, and it was noon on a Saturday afternoon, and it was, you know, ten o'clock at nine o'clock at night in Zurich. How many facilities are there around the world now that that have the capability and that have musicians involved in this? I really can't give you a number. We've probably, uh, myself, have probably collaborated with 10, 15 different places. I know there, there are many more. What's been joining the folks that I've been collaborating with are, are musical reasons not necessarily technical reasons. Right, right. That drives the horse. What's what's interesting and challenging is since Every venue, I mean, we don't really have theaters generally that are dedicated to this work. So, you you know, like a place like NYU, we're doing it in a classroom. Whereas at uh, Belfast, they have a, a studio hmm. that's, you know, they do this a lot. And uh, and and Zurich, they were doing it at the, at the club uh, that I know you've played at many times, Moods. Moods Club, mm -hmm. great, great. Wow. And that, it was the first time that I'm aware of that they've done it at a nightclub. You know, <laughs> they, you know, the fact that you could, you know, I find that really appealing. If if there could be, if we could get, you know, bandwidth in venues like that, you could really do. I mean, my hope for this is that this becomes a professional venue. You yeah. know, if, like, you know, you could put people who are living in different parts of the world and put them together for a compelling concert. That would be a beautiful thing, and yeah. And, and if, now, if you could get moods to serve drinks to the people in San Diego, that would be really be yeah, off well, the scale. Yeah, well, that, that that is one of the drawbacks: the virtual beer after the gig. <laughs> <laughs> I would also like to talk about your DVD, Guts. Yes. Which 
is not just a DVD. I mean, it's an instructional video, it's a solo bass CD, it's got PDFs of all the, of, of a lot of what you do on the bass, um, and a couple of scores, plus an interview, right? Right. Could you talk about the reason why you decided to put out a DVD instead of just another CD? I was asked to do it, actually. Okay. J.C. Jones, who runs the Kadima label in uh, Jerusalem, you know, he proposed the idea to me. It's such an incredible thing. I mean, you know, as a, as a, as a, a fellow bass player and a fan of what you do, I mean, it's such an incredible resource. Well, thank thank you, first of all. And I, mean, I think part of the reason, too, is like, you know, I'm at a university now. I'm teaching. I'm working with players. I'm working with composers. And, you know, uh, in past generations, when you develop a personal vocabulary uh, without trying to be pretentious, but that's uh, that there's stuff that I've I've developed, you know, and, and just the idea of sharing it with other folks just seemed to be a natural thing to do. Right. Rather than, uh, you know, everyone keeping their things secret. And it, yeah. and it really makes no sense in the information age, right? Because, you know, yeah. we have access to all this information. And in the end, the information, it's the context, how information... Mm-hmm. Exactly, and, and actually I sort of feel like the way you presented the material, especially in the instructional aspect of the DVD, is it was just sort of like, here's how this technique works, this is what you can, you know, these are, this is how you actually physically make these sounds, and beyond that, you know, it's, it's pretty wide open in terms of what a player can do with it. I think that's accurate, you know, and the the the, um, the irony of it is all, you know, when you break the things down in technique and and you start talking about ter- parameters, you know, that way of defining the world is really very good for explaining things. It really justifies itself. It, but as, as everyone, as you all know, making music is much more complex. For sure. And and, and how those things go together. I mean that's you know the, that's the difference between information and, and art making, and uh, I just wanted you know for myself I just wanted to, to document it, you know if if, if I if I recall uh, around two thousand uh, John Zorn asked me to write an article on my techniques yeah the Arcana essay or Arcana and that right. sort of it started to bring it to the level of the DVD was just seemed like the the next logical level. One of the um, one of the PDFs that you've included on the DVD is 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 the chart of the the Baka Chacon piece, which happens to be one of my favorite ones, uh, favorite pieces from Unveil. When I when I looked at it, I was kind of amazed actually at how specifically notated it was, and I'm was curious as to what came first. Did you record it and then transcribe what you did, or was it fully notated before you? Well, you know, I, 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 I knew that I wanted to be a Chacon. I knew what I, I knew I wanted to follow a, a, this repeating uh, sonic sequence. And, yeah. and 
like you know the 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 Baca Chown, it's sort of like a contraction. You know, I, I, I sort of based it. Uh, I was really it was written shortly after nine eleven, and I was the, at that point. You know, the, the Bach Chacon was like one of the only things I felt like trying to play because it just kind of spoke to me. And I had always wanted to dedicate a piece to Kachow, you know, Israel Kachow Lopez, the great bass player. And so, like, here was a reason to bring those two things together. So I would just start writing variations on using the hammer on tapping technique and the Chacon itself and specifying, you know, specifying. Yeah, I just had to write it down. And then it, it was a process that went over for quite a long time before it became what, what you yeah, see. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I assumed so. Yeah, so you know, you you write something and you start to play with it and say, well, what follows next? So yeah, it wasn't an it was not an improvisation that I transcribed. It was like I composed this piece by piece and then relearned how to perform it. got a question for you that I've been thinking about for some time and um, I probably should have even asked you back years ago when you invited me to be in your band um, you do so much writing from timbre right using timbre as the primary element in in communicating gestures to musicians and that you know that's a pretty unusual way to work, and it was certainly new to me at that time and and I learned so much from having that opportunity um, do you how do you is that the way that you think of it? Is that an accurate description? Well, you know I, maybe it's a generational thing and coming coming from uh you mean us you, old guys wouldn't well like i i'm I'm probably a decade older than you, Dave oh so. Uh, it, it, and I had gone to UCSD where, you know, experimental as I, you know, I, I didn't, my education was really, you know, through a new music lens, you know, my, you know, going to UCSD studying with Bert mm. and just sort of being involved with a certain viewpoint towards 
you know, experimentalism where there was a point when I really thought the timbre was the new harmony. I, I, I'm not sure how it happened, Dave. It just sort of like once I started looking at the bass and it was it just seemed like, you know, it was so particularly rich as a timbre generator. And it certainly had this pitch component, but it wasn't really till later, like till around 2002, that I really started to organize it in a really pitch-specific way. I was really, I mean, that's not quite true. I sort of did before, too, but to the level of detail that's on guts, I was, you know, I, I would improvise in a recording studio and tr and just, you know, find what I found real rich areas even and even just thinking about you know techniques like subharmonics or like pedal tones like like on brass okay you can look at them as pitch specific things but they have another kind of power as a as a as a sound expression or a gesture in of itself mm -hmm. that's sort of like with timbre it's I often found its power was you know as a as itself rather than attached to pitch. Uh, and I went and, and like the first solo music I did uh, was sort of organized that way. Uh, and with not a lot of harmonic uh, consciousness. And certainly not, because, you know, my hands, my hands were full just doing that. Meanwhile, you know, I spent a lot of time transcribing it and trying to figure out what it was and sort of like, with each step of, you know, you're discovering something, then there's this period of translation of, well, what, what can you do with this? Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I've answered your question, but, you know, part, I'd say generally using the bass as a, as a composing instrument rather than a piano mm -hmm. led me in that direction. And, and I, you know, that's, that's, and then also having been, you know, in a new music environment, you know, an experimental environment where that was, you know, encouraged and also coming in, in a, you know, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a coming up in a generation where the idea of developing your own music was 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 the thing was the thing to do was the principal exact reason for doing it. Yeah. So, like, you know, um, you know, and whether or not you had linearly uh, mastered the tradition from, you know, in a linear kind of way, which I hadn't or and, you know, I so it's just, you know, it's. But you were it, always involved with heavyweight improvisers, too. Right. So, you know, uh, you know it's just kind of, um, you know, it was a generational thing as well as, uh, you know, and, and as well as just, you know, you know, if you, having exp been exposed to, you know, Bert Turetsky, you know, if, as a 17 year old, you know, that, that changes your viewpoint about what you think the bass can do. Mm -hmm. it, and from and from the from the icon point of view, you, you get, I got the green light from listening to the expressivity of like of Hendrix, which is who has been was a you know an inspiration to many sonic based improvisers, and then also Mingus, you know that is just sort of an expressionistic kind of point of view that that coming of age in 1970 
71, you know, in that period, you know, there was a lot going on that spoke to that sentiment of, you know, expressionism, freedom of what that meant. And, and I felt like the, the sonic area of the bass was the place where it could, it could really have its power. And it sort of lent me towards like, well, if I could amplify this region on the bass that only I can hear in the practice room, wouldn't that be cool? So, you know, and again, that just sort of, I'm sort of a persistent person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh and i you know just have slowly followed that up and found people to collaborate with to help me you know bring that to the forefront something that went by kind of quick in the conversation just now that uh, I wanted to just follow up with. You mentioned uh, 20th century, late 20th century composers who were also using timbre as an organizing principle as opposed to harmony. Um, And and I'm just wondering if uh, you could uh, uh, mention a few names of of who you're talking about. Just as a teenager hearing Cage, hearing Poussier, hearing the early electronic music, you know, that uh, and then, and then, and then later meeting my peers, uh, someone like Earl Howard, who was the, and I think I met Earl in about 1980, you know, you know, at a certain point, your peers become your teachers as well. You know, you get, you know, and he was the first person I know who talked about documenting your language hmm. and, uh, and, uh, Jerry Hemingway and I, who, you know, we had done a lot of woodshedding and playing together over the years. You know, we both did it in, in our own ways and developed our own solo languages. And uh, and then when I met, you know, um, Demon, who, you know, had gone to, you know, had been at CalArts at the same time that Earl had had been now, you know, and Earl was a student of um, uh, Mort Sabotnik. Now, I don't know if that was the... The, the inspiration, but certainly electronic music and thinking about sound from, you know, its basic parameters, you know, I think really affected us, mm. you know, and, and, you know, just, you know, thinking about the envelope of our sound, you know, just, just the, the ways that you think about electronic music sort of, uh, sort of translated into thinking about our instruments in untraditional ways. say that the work that you did with Anthony Braxton maybe was in some ways coming out of that same impulse? 
I mean, Braxton's music is a universe in and of itself. I just say that playing with Braxton, you know, playing with a guy of that, uh, 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 whose music of had that much breadth and a, and a, and a musician of such uh, courage. Mm-hmm, uh, for sure. Yeah. Really, you know, was very empowering. And, uh, and you know, as well, he, he was the, playing with Braxton was like going through the ranks too, you know, with an established master of another, of an older generation and uh, whose music singularly had, I've never played with anyone who demanded as much responsibility and gave you as much freedom as his music. Hmm. Wow, that's beautiful, yeah. Playing in that band with, uh, um, you know, with Jerry, who I had already, I don't know, see, I joined Braxton in 85, and I'd, kno- I'd known Hemingway's for a good 10 years er- before that. Mm. We shared a lot of, we had, we'd already played a lot of music together, and shared a lot of, you know, we played in Ray Anderson's band, you know, five years earlier, my first tour to Europe with him. You know Hemingway's a very special guy, mm-hmm. and you know I, I've so my collaboration with him uh, has been very very important over the years. I know I haven't played with him in the last so much in the last decade, except for this telematic stuff, the most recent stuff. But mm-hmm. uh, he's always had a uh, a real attraction and gift for complexity. Mark, uh, we have to go, but thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Everything that you describe about all those great musicians certainly reflects back on your own work uh, many great. times over. Great to talk to you, Mark. Thank you again. Bye, Dave. All Bye, right. Mike. See you. Bye. Mark Dresser. Oh, it's, I have to, you know, work really hard not to be super nerdy about him. 
and I, you know, I'm regretting right now I, oh. not asking him the one question I wanted to ask him. And what was, was that? What do you practice? Oh, <laughs> there is that. Yeah. It is no secret what God can do. Oh, my Lord, what he done for others. Do you believe he do for you? Yes, we'll get in no secret mm-hmm. what God can do. It is no secret what God can do. Oh, my Lord, what He done for others, do you believe? So that's some pretty incredible music, huh? Mm-hmm. Leon Pinson. And um, this is from a box set, actually a vinyl set that I just picked up <laughs> called the George Mitchell Collection. And it's actually 4545. So I have it on oh, vinyl. Oh, wow. It's something that you can pick up with some ease um, from iTunes and whatever other sort of download venue. But it's basically this guy named George Mitchell who sort of around 1967 was a young man and drove all through Arkansas, Mississippi, and the Carolinas and Mm. just sought out some well-known blues legends, but also lesser-known blues legends. And um, he Hmm. brought along a a reel-to-reel tape machine. Hmm. He recorded them himself. And I guess what's interesting about him is he was not... Uh, a musicologist. He was just a, an, a, a huge fan and mm. kind of, I think, a, a very affable guy, a little bit eccentric. And he was someone that kind of, you know, found his way into the hearts of these these blues musicians and they kind of opened up to him. So the music has this kind of electric mm. feel to it that, mm-hmm. you, you know, you don't make, well, I mean, it's just different from, say, like the Alan Lomax stuff. Mm-hmm. So really mm-hmm. fantastic. And... Um, they're on 45s, 45s. so vinyl, vinyl, what is that, 45s. a 7-inch? Um, yeah, And there's exactly. one song per side. No, there's about two. There's two per side, mm-hmm. and um, I've, I've managed to get my way through about the first half in, in the time that I've had it, and, and all of it sounds great. You have a 45 player? I do. Oh. Well, actually, they play at 33, but they're 45s. Interesting. Yes. Because I... Saw it and I tried to put it in my computer and it didn't really. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't fit. It didn't work out very well. <laughs> so this piece that I'd like to play um, now mm. is by a guy named John Lee Ziegler, and this is some wild slide guitar and spoons. And uh, that once again, the George Mitchell collection, really worth checking out. That's fantastic. What label is that on? It's on Fat Possum Records, oh. and their sticker says, "We do our best." <laughs> I'm sure they do. Yeah, be- 
I'm not Canadian. No, I'm not. I'm I'm from New Jersey, and uh, that explains a lot. I returned to the scene of my origin recently, um, part of this 50 States tour, and uh, I did not record any of this podcast there. I recorded it all here with Michael Bates and Dave Douglas. It's a noise from the deep. The Greenleaf Music, Music Podcast. Podcast. Dot com. Mm-hmm. 